All right. Now, I hope you've been enjoying the studies in Isaiah, as Sam has mentioned. We've been doing it for quite a number of weeks now. Now, there's all sorts of uh, outlines and and uh, divisions of the book of Isaiah that you could do when you're studying it. And if you've got any books, I've got three on my shelf. And you look at the, how they've divided up. They've all got their own little way. You know, some of them are very extensive. I like, I personally like Chuck Swindle. He's very simple. You know, he divides it into three sections. Very good. But whatever way you look at it, whichever way you want to divide up Isaiah. Uh, you come to chapter 13 as a distinctive division. Distinctive division. You see, in chapters 1 to 12 of Isaiah, we've been, we've been looking up until today, uh, we've been looking at the judgment, God's judgment on his own people, Israel. We made a big point of that when we first started. And in particular, we've been noting the judgment on the northern kingdom. So you get to chapter 13, and from chapter 13 to chapter 23 is another big section uh, in Isaiah, and that's God's judgment on the nations, the Gentiles, you know, the other people, God's people, and then the rest. So for 24, and then in chapter 24, uh, there's uh, God's judgment on all the earth. I don't know who that is because... But anyway, the first 24 chapters in the book of Isaiah is all about judgment. It's very important to note that. So in chapter 13 here we have the commencement of a new division in the the book of Isaiah that starts the, the, the judgment of the nations with one particular nation, the nation of Babylon. If you've been a Christian any length of time, you know, Babylon plays a very significant role. Uh, in the Bible. Now, there are ten, ten nations involved in, in these, uh, chapters that will be judged by God. Now, we're not going to be looking at all those nations and all those chapters together. So, I'm sure you've looked at it already or we'll be looking at them in the coming weeks. So I'm just going to mention those ten nations just so that we're aware of of who it's referring to. We're not going to be looking at them at all today or in the subsequent weeks. Uh, David, brother David, no, he's not, there he is, yeah. He's doing chapter 22 next week. So there's a big section, big hole there for you to fill in during the week. So the ten nations were, apart from Babylon, is Assyria, the nation of the Philistines, the nation of Moab, uh, the nation of Damascus, Cush, uh, which is, and a couple of other unnamed African nations, Egypt, the nation of Edom, Arabia, and Tyre. Uh, these are all the nations that will be you know, judged by God according to the prophet Isaiah. Now, the thing to note about these nations, when you read through them, if you haven't already, that they they will all be judged because of their involvement with the nation of Israel, with God's people. They were either enemies of Israel, they were either uh, an evil influence on the nation of Israel, or they had an alliance 
with the nation of Israel and, and that alliance caused the people of God to take on the customs, the culture of the land and unfortunately the gods of that land. It's interesting, isn't it? How you, you, you don't realise that God's taking note of all these things. And God isn't just overlooking it either. But it's the, I found it quite fascinating that all these nations had a, a significant involvement with the people of God. And the Old Testament, it's already been mentioned to, to this morning, that the Old Testament is, is related, all the, uh, sorry, all the, the Old Testament prophecies are all related to Israel. Even though we're looking at a prophecy about Babylon and there are other prophecies about those other nations, but I doubt very much whether they actually heard these prophecies, those nations. Babylon certainly didn't. And the reason, the reason that, that, uh, that the, this, this prophecy was declared, it was declared uh, to Israel, was to show them certain things that God considered important. And that's another thing we've been thinking about, haven't we? We've mentioned that we were seeing the heart and the mind of God when you look at prophecy. So the things that are happening to the nation of Israel, to the people of God, concerns God. He's the master, he's the king of kings, the God of all creation. Nothing goes unnoticed, especially when it affects his people. And so you have, you have this prophecy about what's going to happen to Babylon and the people that, uh, that, that the nation of Israel uh, looked for for an alliance or as an influencer. The prophets told the nation of Israel God's mind and God's intention. Some of those some of those prophecies that uh, we've looked at, some of them were good, and some not so good. The purpose for prophecy is to warn, rebuke to turn the people back to God, to give also to give hope, to give hope sometimes. That last bit in chapter 14, sorry, the the, the first two verses in that last reading, thank you Desi for doing that, is a bit of hope to the nation of Israel. And also to give an insight that God has a plan, has always had a plan, and that plan will come to fruition no matter what. It's very important. And, you know, it's interesting, when I was thinking about that in preparing for today, it it really dawned on me that this pattern, this pattern that we see in the Old Testament, it's repeated in the New Testament. There are warnings, there are encouragements, there are instructions to the people of God that we're supposed to obey. Don't always do that, but we're supposed to. It doesn't go unnoticed by God. And his ultimate plan is to, is to bring us to a position of being like his son, become Christ-like. That's been predestined by God, that we become like his son and dwell forever in eternity. And that plan will come to fruition. 
So the, the idea of uh, the, the subject matter today is that God is the master of the nations. Here's a question for you. When you look around, and I'm thinking about the nation of Israel, when they were looking around, is God in control? Would have been in their mind. Is God in control? Over the last 18 months, it's been very challenging for everybody in the world. Everybody. No exclusions. And I heard that little phrase a lot amongst Christian people, friends, members of this congregation, other people that uh, uh, you listen to, you know, little podcasts and thing. God is in control. It's a phrase that's repeated over and over and over again. And I've just been noticing lately that, it, that they, it's just like a, a glib saying, is it? Is God in control is the first thing I'd like to ask. Is he in control? And if he is, how do we, how do we relate to that? God is in control? Yeah. So which vaccine are you going to have? The Pfizer? AstraZeneca? Are you going to hang out for the Moderna one? Hmm? If God is in control, why do I need a vaccine anyway? Huh? God, God will protect me. He will bless me. You see, it's not that easy, is it? Because what we think about that little phrase is actioned out in the way we live. That's what happened to the nation of Israel. Do you, do you realise the nation of Israel were in such a privileged position, right? They, they, they saw, they actually saw with their own eyes visual specific demonstrations of God's control over all sorts of things. Kings, rivers, plagues. All sorts of things. They lived through God's control. They saw it. They lived it. They witnessed it physically. And yet they're being judged. We've just gone through 12 chapters of Isaiah telling, telling us how God is going to judge his people. So this idea of is God in control and how does it relate to me is very important, don't you think? However we see this little phrase, God is in control, is important because if we don't subject ourselves to that control, and that's the key, brothers and sisters, there's going to be judgment. That's what the book of Isaiah tells us. This is what the nations are, are going to learn in the, in the next ten chapters of Isaiah. So what does it look like, this 
This God is in control phrase. What does it look like to you and me? How does it relate? How do we live it out? Very, very important question. So, you know, you know, what did I do? I did my thing, didn't I? I looked up the word control. It's interesting. Every time I do that, you know, uh, I'm reminded how much I don't know about the English language. I'm going to give you four things that told me about the word control. Now, you probably think, if I know what control means, listen to this. It means to exercise restraint, to dominate command. That's the first meaning. The second one is to hold in check, to regulate, and that means by some sort of rule or principle. It means, it also means to eliminate or prevent the spread of, for example, pests, you know, disease, you know, viruses. And then the one that we, I probably thought, you know, was what control meant, means to guide or to steer. What I discovered about the word control is it doesn't uh, mean that God is responsible for all that happens. Have you got that? God is not responsible for all that happens. I'm going to explain that. You see, I often get asked the question, why does evil exist, Raph? Why does it exist? Why does God allow evil to exist? Why does God allow people to get sick? Why do babies die, Raph? They're challenging questions to answer, aren't they? And why does God people, why does God allow people to starve? There's so much hunger and famine in the world. What is he allow? What sort of a God is he? Is he in control? Because you look out there, it's chaos. It's out of control. So I'm going to give you a little illustration of the word control with that last little question that I asked. Why does God allow so much, so many people to starve? See, we, we like to think that God, uh, micromanages everything, you know, he's, he's, in, he's in every single detail and, and he's watching everything and he's adjusting everything. That's technically not, not right, I don't think. You see, there are 7.4 billion people in the world. That's a lot of food, is it not? Imagine if you had the, uh, the rights for the... Anyway, 7.4 billion people. There are 2 billion people who are either malnourished, undernourished or starving. 2 billion people out of that 7.4 billion. Why doesn't God do something about that? Well, he has. God has organised the seasons and the seeds and the animals and the rain and the sunshine to provide food for 10 billion people. That's been, uh, there's a study done by the United Nations and a few other people in 2019. These are the figures that they came up with for 2018. We produce, when I say we, mankind produces 1.5 times the amount of food that's required to feed 
everyone in the whole world. So why are there two billion people starving, malnourished? It's a good question, isn't it? Who's responsible for that? God doesn't micromanage, but he does control. Let's have a look at those little phrases. Exercise restraint. God can, in scripture, we read that God is long suffering in the, in the, in the King James. I love that term because it applies to me. I'm glad he's long suffering towards me. I really am. It tells us that God is patient and God is merciful. And brothers and sisters, we need to praise him for that. I'm glad that God is in control of his, his righteous anger. And he doesn't execute justice suddenly, as it should be, I think. Even in the book of Isaiah, the whole book of Isaiah, we've already seen and we'll see in in days to come that, that God, we see not just God's judgment, but we see his restraint. His restraint. See, God is not quick to judge. You read Isaiah and you think, oh... Judging God, judging God. God is very judging, judgmental, you know, quick to judge. He's not. If you've learned nothing from Isaiah, you know that God gives ample opportunity, years and years and years, for people to come to their senses, to see what's going on, to heed the warning. God is not quick to judge, brothers and sisters, but he does judge. He does judge. It never overlooks. And the judgment is harsh, Elizabeth. It is harsh. We read it. We read it. That's why I wanted the whole chapter to be read this morning. That's a hard judgment. Isn't it? It's not a slap on the wrist. And when we see injustice, we want a harsh judgment. On 3AW this week, the amount of people, just about everyone that rang up was disgusted and disappointed and angry at the sentence of that truck driver that um, you know, ploughed into those, the, the policemen, the four policemen that died last year. 22 years he got. And you should have heard the people's complaints not justice. It's not justice. So even even we want quick and and harsh justice when 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 the crime is terrible. But God is not quick to judge. He restrains his his justice. The commands God uses God uses his commands in Scripture to exercise control. He's given us a whole heap of instructions. A lot of people say the rules, but uh, whatever. A whole heap of instructions in his word. And, and he uses the, the word of God to control moral standards, social interaction, uh, spiritual uh, um, uh, development. You know, you know, we've been praying for our government, and we should, because that's a God-given thing. God is a God of order. And so to mankind, he has given the system of government. Now, not all government's good, and I'm not talking Labor or Liberal, but is it 
But is God responsible for all the bad government? Interesting question, isn't it? Who, who elects the governments, the representatives? Do we just vote Labor Liberal? Greens, maybe. If there's, I don't have any green people here. Do we actually think about what, who we put into power, who makes the decisions, who, who our brother Rob mentioned about um, the, who decides on what our, our children learn in schools? God's provided government for us so that we live orderly, we have health care, things are structured, but he doesn't micromanage that. Regulate means to hold in check. You know, all of God's natural laws are part of God's control. You know when it's spring and you know when it's summer and you can tell when it's going to rain. And, you know, we can predict certain things. You know, scientists, I mean, I'm not, I'm not really smart like that, but they can predict things, you know, like... You know, when, when the orbit of the, of the, of, of the moon and the orbits of the planets around the sun, it's all mathematically in place. Now, I remember reading, this is years ago, that if you just tilt the Earth's axis by another little bit, X amount of degree, tiny, tiny bit, we wouldn't be here. And yet there it is, spinning away in outer space. No one's flying, flying off the planet. You know? That's how God controls. And, and He controls the universe like that. And then it talks about eliminating and, and preventing the, sp- the spread of it. And we've noticed in Isaiah that no matter how bad things get, there's always a limit. Isn't there? There's always a limit. There's always a remnant. Because there's a plan. God has a plan. He doesn't just wipe things out. And that's right through Scripture. Think about the the really big judgments in Scripture. The flood. The flood. There was a remnant. Because there was a plan. Think about Pharaoh's army. The things that, that, that that nation did to the people of God and how the army and Pharaoh chased them to the, to the Red Sea and, and God parted the sea and the people went through and then he destroyed not Egypt but Pharaoh and his army. The God, God is measured. And then and the, I love the story of the serpent on the pole. As the nation of Israel were going through the wilderness and they did the wrong thing, of course, you know, they were influenced by the people round about, started to take on some of the things that they were doing, you know, having, you know, intimate relationships with people they shouldn't be having. And God had to judge them. And it tells us that thousands upon thousands of the nation of Israel died that day. That God provided a serpent on a pole. But if you got bitten by the serpent and you looked at it, you lived. That's how God controls. Otherwise, none of us would be here today. 
And then guided steer. God has a purpose and a plan and a timeline. God has a timeline. Do you realise this? You know why some things aren't happening at the moment? Because it's not the right time, Desi. God says, not yet. Not yet. He has a timeline, believe it or not. And, and his control of whatever's happening, the elements, mankind, your life and mine, is subject to the prime objective that God has, which we read of in the scripture. For the Christian, and that's, that is to become Christ-like and to, and to live for eternity in heaven. That was always God's prime objective. So this, this passage that we've been looking at this morning, or going to be looking at this morning, is, is the beginning, the beginning of a, of a God's holy and righteous character being exhibited to the nations. The people of God have already seen it. They know it, or they should know it, they exhibit it. But I want you to note really well this morning that no one, no one at all, right, escapes God's judgment or examination. Uh, at, no one at all escapes. Sometimes you get the impression that, that we think that because we're saved and we're the people of God, there's no judgment for us. I don't know where you get that impression from. Because what, we've, what I've learned... Looking, being reminded by looking at the book of Isaiah is that God, God's judgment starts with his own house first and then the rest of the nations. What happens in the New Testament? Do you realise that the judgment seat of Christ comes before the great white throne judgment? God examines his own people the Lord examines his people first before he sits on the great white throne judgment. It's a pattern of God. So something to remember. There's some interesting things in this passage and I'm just going to quickly point them out to you. Sovereignty is another way of control. That means that you, you rule, you rule. I guess because we live in the time that we live, we don't really understand what it means to be a king, really. We see it as a ceremonial thing. I mean, you know, if you, if you spent time last night watching the funeral, you get an idea of what, you know, we think it means, but it's not what it means here. It means that you actually owned everything. A sovereign owned the land, the animals, the people he owned everything and could do whatever he liked. Now, our history, is littered with very bad kings, very bad kings. So we have a very poor example of what a sovereign is really like because a sovereign should love his kingdom. It's his, his precious, precious possession. And the people that make up his kingdom, it's his job to look after them, care for them. They're his wealth, his status. So God is sovereign. Uh, you notice in verses 2 and 3, he, he calls on whoever he wants. The king of kings calls on whoever he wants to do his bidding. And here he's calling on another Gentile nation to judge the Babylonians. And he calls, he's able to call them to do whatever he wants them to do in verses 4 and 5. And the Medes were very nasty people, but God set a limit. 
and the king will exercise his rule over his kingdom. That's what verses 9 and 13 tell us. He has a right to do that. Often when I speak to people, I get the impression that they feel that God has no right to judge them, has no right to tell them how they should live or ought to live. He does have a right. We're not happy about it. Quite often we read, uh, again, uh, history is littered with rebellions against kings, isn't it? I mean, it's probably justified if he's a bad king, but not this one, not this one. And we read in verse 11 there that, that, that it's, it says, I will punish the world for its evil and its wickedness. So the judgment is justified. I know it's harsh, it is harsh, but it's justified. And God will be justified for doing what he did. We'll see that as we go through uh, Isaiah. I don't want to take anyone else's uh, message away from them. God is justified because they never repented. And in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 14, we see God's plan, right? Even though this this is a bad thing happening here, this bad judgment, and God's plan is still going on, unabated. And we have the fulfilment of God's plan there in verses 1 and 2 uh, with the, with the uh, partial fulfilment when the, they, the exiles come back from Babylon uh, under King Cyrus. And you read about that in Ezra. Now, it's a gloomy, it's a gloomy passage, it really is, and, and, and I'm sure you haven't been edified very much by it. But you see, sometimes we don't give God a choice. We don't give God a choice. He has to judge. He must judge. He's righteous. He will not overlook sin. He never has, never will, so don't even think about it. And sometimes I live like that. Sometimes because God hasn't struck me down dead, I think, oh, he didn't notice I did that. I don't think God's noticed I haven't done that yet. I don't think God's paying attention. Foolish to think like that. Because God is long-suffering. The warnings I get from Scripture when I read it, it's unbelievable. It's my responsibility, brothers and sisters, to heed the warning, to fix up what's necessary. Because he will judge me one way or another. The very worst, the very worst, is that he will, he will withhold blessing. He can't bless a sinner? He can't bless someone who's rebellious. He can't. He won't. That's what happened to the nation of Israel. This is what's going to happen to, to the Gentiles because they won't repent. He has no choice. I'm going to give you a little glimpse. I'm going to finish with this. I'm going to read you a little passage out of Ezekiel who was another prophet. Have a look. Read chapter 33 today or tomorrow when you get home. I'm going to read you two verses and this shows you the heart of the God that we have. And And you need to stop and think, what am I causing God to do in my life, in my church and in in my society? Here it is. Ezekiel chapter 33. Now this is, this is another prophet 
speaking to the nation of Israel and have a listen to what he's saying. And this is what God is instructing Ezekiel to say to the people. This is what you are saying. Our offences and our sins are weighing us down and we are wasting away because of them. How can we live? Say to them, God says, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Have you got that? He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? There's a cry. There's a cry from God. Why are you making me do this? And in the New Testament, it's the same God. In Peter, first Peter, God is willing that none should perish, but all come to repentance. Judgment is harsh, but God is a compassionate God, a loving God, a God who is seeking to save. That's the message. When they ask you about why does God allow this and that, you tell them about the God of compassion, the long-suffering God, the God that loves them and gave his son to be their saviour. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you this morning for the opportunity to open your word. And Father, we confess sometimes when we open it, it shocks us. Sometimes we get distressed by what we read. But I thank you, Father, for recording those things for us to read and to remember and to be, uh, be aware of and to learn from and to adjust our lives in accordance to. So, Father, this morning as we reflect on the judgments that uh, we read of in, in the, uh, the book of Isaiah help us to see that uh, we too are the people of God. We too have been given warnings by uh, the apostles and the, the scriptures that we find written in the New Testament. And we too will one day have to stand before the throne of, of, uh, of grace and give an account for the way in which we've lived and honoured the Lord Jesus Christ who is our Lord and Saviour. So, Father, help us to uh, to have receptive hearts and uh, to be courageous enough to make the adjustments that we need in order to bring honour and glory and praise to our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And it is in his name we ask. Amen.